0: Having a Gas is the podcast that talks the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Yoad Nevo, a mix engineer with 30 number one singles and 50 top 10 albums under his belt. And, as an audio technologist, he's worked on over 100 product releases for Waves Audio.
1: I believe, are you a, uh, an ambassador for Waves? Um, you can say that. Yeah, I've been working uh, for Waves for many, many years. Um, and I'm a team, uh, product team leader at Waves. So, uh, yeah.
0: Excellent stuff. So I suppose we'll, uh, before we get to that, should we uh, go from the beginning and maybe uh, tell us a little bit about uh why it was that you wanted to work in
1: music? What lit the flame for you uh, when you were younger? Uh, Yeah, I started quite young. At the age of 10, uh, I started playing guitar. And my dad got me an electric guitar, but I had no amp. So I I had one uh, jack-to-jack lead, and I cut off the one end and exposed the wires and started to try to find things to plug the guitar to 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 make it make sound um and i think that that kind of started the whole engineering aspect which was always hand in hand with the musicianship and you know playing uh and writing and all that yeah i think um noah
0: Forty Shabib, I think that's his, how you pronounce his name. But, you know, Drake's uh, exec producer, Forty, he said uh, something similar. You know that you've kind of got the... You've been bitten by the bug uh, that all producers get when you enjoy the music just as much as uh, actually messing around with the inputs and stuff. Uh, at home, We're all of us uh, who were obsessed with these sort of RGB, AV inputs on, on the TV were destined to become uh, engineers of some kind. But... Uh, yeah, that's that's a step beyond actually deconstructing your own uh, cables at the age of ten. That's quite impressive.
1: Yeah, I guess that every guitarist, in a way, is uh, you know a, a sound engineer to to a certain extent because you have all the pedals and you plug them in and out and chain them and try different things. So, um, yeah, I know what you mean because to be
0: a guitarist, um, an electric guitarist. Tone control, uh, distortion, pickup variation, uh, and of course the choice of guitar—all of it affects enormously the, the 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 color and the character of the instrument. And the variation is almost uh, infinite. Have Have you ever been in one of those sessions where we're just trying one guitar tone after the next, after the next, until we get the perfect one? Um, yeah, every
1: guitar, every time I record guitars,
0: yeah. <laughs> And is that you recording your own guitars personally, or working with other artists?
1: I usually, I usually play um, in my productions. I usually play, I usually play guitars, unless it's a band or something like that that I that I produce, and then obviously they they play. Uh, but usually, I play guitars, uh, bass, keyboards, drums. Sometimes, I'm I'm kind of a bit of a control freak, so I like to do um, everything I can. Uh, on my own. I used to work with session musicians and stuff, but it's, uh, yeah, happens more and more, uh, more and more, like, it's a rare occasion these days. So would
0: you, do you think that um, when music technology started to become more and more advanced and um, VSTs could capably replace Uh, you know, other instrumentalists. Uh, Did you see, like, a noticeable decrease in in session musicians working on records?
1: No, uh, I can't. I I mean, there is a correlation, but it's not as uh, kind of binary because... uh, you, you still have a lot of played instruments or organic instruments in productions. Obviously, there's tons of electronic music and the use of samples and all that. But if you take into account the fact that people have to make those, create those samples. So it's not that the musicians are not playing, they're playing in a different kind of medium or a different format. So rather than playing a part in a session, they're creating sample libraries and loops and things like that. Um, So it's just kind of a different incarnation of of the same thing in a way. I actually, um, I I know where
0: where of you speak there because I saw there's a producer I follow in London called Young Face, uh, Young stylized with a V instead of a U. And um, he was making the point that if you're, a a loop maker for someone like Loop Masters or something like that and uh, the loop effectively makes it onto the record uh, without being changed or manipulated you could be considered as a co-producer or a co-writer on the record
1: Um, yeah I don't know how much of that you can say you are the producer or the co-producer but I don't know In, in terms of royalty I don't think royalties I don't think you'll get anything
0: no, but um, uh, I know what you mean about the um, the the level of skill and um, understanding of you know the engineering and how to create and, and manipulate sounds goes into creating new samples on the fly. Um, it's certainly not uh, just taking audio from pre-existing records. It's it's, it's a discipline unto itself
1: now. Yeah um yeah in 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 a way producers have it easy these days because you have everything you touch already sounds so good you open some contact instruments and it sounds amazing um some i don't know whatever you you have in your at, at, at your fingertips is already processed and sounding great at the end of the day it's it's down to talent because you know Everyone can play uh 12 bar blues on an acoustic guitar, but you have to be an old kind of uh blind guy with one tooth in order to to do it right. And and it's still it's still the case with uh, with samples and uh and, and anything we we deal with, you know. Uh you don't have do much in order to technically to to come up with a great guitar riff, a great pop riff that you know a whole song could be based on. Still, very few people do it, um, and it's it, it's a lot down to to taste and to the choice of, that you make of the abundance of uh, of things that that you have at your disposal. Um, so it's almost, you know, it's like being a DJ technically is really easy, but to get a a room full of people on their feet and to keep them dancing is really, really hard. It's not about pressing play. It's about what to play and the timing and all that. And the same goes with production. It's about taste. Um, It's about paste, it's about, uh, you know, it's a form of art. Taking a picture on on your phone is really easy. But anyone can do it, but very few people can really do
0: it great. And this sounds a little bit like the debate that was going around in the music industry, let's say 10 to 12 years ago, when this technology was becoming much more accessible. And... um, the very same question was being asked. Is If everyone has access to this technology, will it not just dilute the amount of content? And I suppose it sounds like your answer is uh, no, because no matter how much content
1: is being produced, a fraction of it will be excellent. I think that there's a different argument there because since we have so many, so because it's so easy or since it's so easy to, to make music, a lot of people make music, and you don't need uh, to 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 put together a demo and to go to the record label and to, to even get a four track or a multi track and to ask favors from friends and all that you can have everything you need so a lot of people do make music so, so there's a lot more music around um, it, in in that sense it's kind of it it, it kind of clouds and anything and there's a lot of noise and it's really hard to spot the good stuff, but they're still there. So what year
0: did you become a would you consider that you became a professional in the industry and you know went from being someone who is who aspired to be in the industry?
1: um I'm not sure I want to tell you because that will uh, <laughs> just tell everyone how old I am but it was it will, uh, yeah. let's say it was more than five years ago
0: okay so it was 2015 and uh-huh. uh, <laughs> so but well I'm going to make inferences then we don't have to name a specific year but it sounds as if um, y- the way you were describing how easy it is to be a producer now uh, gives light to the fact that you were working when it was not so easy so Absolutely. Yeah, maybe describe what that was like. So I am I work with Kontakt. I'm a professional composer working in advertising and that's what we do. We open, you know, Spitfire for the orchestra or something that's been perfectly recorded for us like that or, um, you know, Omnisphere, all these great things. Um, what would have happened if I was doing my job, let's say,
1: 20 years ago? By the way, next time, try my uh, Nexus expansion, which is called Studio Production okay uh volume 1 uh, because it's exactly that i created the tools that people like us would want to use um Amazing. but sorry i had to plug it um but anyway uh, i love nexus it's a great it's a great platform and i started doing um Libraries for them and I really enjoy it. It's a really wicked platform. I know that not it's not an industry standard for non-EDM producers. And this is something that I wanted to change with this uh with this library, and I'm working on a few more currently. Um sorry, what was the question? I got the question um, was I will oh, pick yeah, up on I'll, that later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so so I started. Really, just during the early days of the transition to digital. When I when I started working in a studio, um it was all multi-track, two-inch tapes. Um and I'm very I, I consider myself very lucky to have you know, participated in that and, and master that because, I, because I, I've, I've done enough records on tapes, cutting tape, splicing, mixing um, manually, doing recalls on the desk and, and all those things, um, which, which still help me today in my production and my mixing because you what you learn is the discipline. You learn the the kind of being methodical and and trying to get by with what you with what you have when you mix on a, on a desk like on a Neve or an SSL um, traditionally without plugins without a computer even or maybe with a computer that runs MIDI or stuff which is more like you know additional recording capacity um, but not. Um, nothing that involves uh involves with the sound um you basically you have 48 or 60 or 24 or however, however many eqs if you're lucky if you work on ssl or that's like this then you have dynamics on every channels but you know that's not always the case um and you have a few effects in the in the in the rack or a few additional compressors and EQ. And you have to make a great sounding record with that. It's not, you know, you, you can't really EQ the reverse symbol that comes, that happens once after the middle eight or something like that. You just yeah. can't. Um, so, so you, you kind of get to, 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 to work with the, with the basics. Um, you have a base you EQ it you go on to the next the workflow is different because it's more parallel you're not looking at the screen um, so the whole discipline is very very different um, and this, and it's it's hard work it's, it's sometimes it's physical you know you have to splice tape you have to prepare the session you have to Load the the patch bay. Uh, loading from if you probably haven't done a total recall on on a big SSL J or or G or something or G plus or something. It takes two and a half hours to rec- to recall a session. A, a full session just the desk takes about an hour and a half to to two hours, and it's and it's breaking your neck because you have to look at the screen, which is up there and you have to match this to the screen and then move to the other, you know, it's, um, so technology these days allow us to, allows us to, to, to enjoy a lot of the sonic features of the gear that we used to work with. Maybe not, quite maybe it's 90% you get 90% of the sound or 85% of the sound and this is something that at waves now wearing my other hat my product developer hat and when we model um, analog gear and stuff like that try to get it and and it, you know it usually it it's really really close um but you compensate for those missing 10 percent or five percent or, or whatever by having the convenience of just loading up a session it loads with tons of stuff on it and it sounds exactly like you like you left it because when you do a recall on a in a studio uh, like that which i never do by the way i use the desk for recording, for for summing, for, for summing, I don't mix on the desk per se. Um, I, I use it, yeah. I use the mic preamps and the EQ for recording. Sometimes I run stuff through the desk, but the main mix is in the box. When when the when the song requires it, I will split it into forty eight outputs and run, run it on through the need for summing uh, for rock stuff uh, uh, and, and things like that. Um, but the, the, there's a huge benefit in terms of, the, of the, your, your entire workflow or your entire, the, the entire concept where you load the session, you can work on it for half an hour. You put it away, you work on something else for another two hours then you take you, you know, you, you bounce it, you listen on your phone, you listen in the car. <laughs> I think that that a lot of my mixing is done on my phone, just listening to the mix because and making mental notes, because um, applying those comments or those notes takes five minutes. You know, so it's easy. Okay, too much compression on the vocal. It needs more de-essing. It needs, the bass needs to be this and this. Once you understand what you have to do, it's very easy to implement it. But the yeah. benefit of stepping away from it and, you know, when I mix, it usually takes a few days. It doesn't mean that I work on the song for four days or five days. I do other stuff but it allows me to live with the song because in the in the old days you know we had a day or maybe a day and a half to mix a song and sometimes more because I've been in a I, I mixed an album once when we mixed the album in six weeks and one week was just on one song and it was a nightmare but uh, and you still obviously you still have projects like that and um, today as well but Usually, you would finish the mix and come back in the morning and spend a couple more hours on it. And that was it. That was that song. Very, very rarely, you would uh, load it up again and do a recall and all that. Um, So it's a different... I'm not saying which one... It's hard to say which one is better because if you listen to some of the stuff from... Let's say from mid '80s. I think for me it's the pinnacle of of sound. Could um, you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, um, if you listen to, um, and I'm not talking about personal musical taste. I'm of talking, course. and this is, it's sometimes it's hard to make the distinguish to distinguish between the two, because I look at it from a producer, engineer. Perspective. Some of the stuff I love, by the way. But uh, regardless of that, um, if you listen to stuff like uh, Peter Gabriel, so Tears for Fears, um, Sting, um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, you know things like that. The it's the the sound is unbelievable because you had enough the technology. Um, you had the the best of everything in in big projects like that. Not everyone was so lucky to um, to ha- to have had the the access to, to all that gear and all that time in the studio and all that. But if you did, you have your uh, or stilly Dan, um, Gaucho. You know you listen to stuff like that, and it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, so um, you're, uh,
0: you're, you're talking from the perspective of the quality of recorded and produced sound. So not available to uh, Naked gun or, you know, punk rock bands who had, you know, $50. This is the, you know, the most expensive recordings that you could
1: really labor on. Yeah, but uh, you, you have some amazing punk records and, uh, you know, Suzy and the Banshees and it, it sounds unbelievable. And uh, Mike had just used to do it in the nights, like during the nights after session, after you know, after hours in the studio, he was he was uh, working in, and it was done very quickly and all that. So it's all about the vibe. But I'm talking about, and you had that in the '70s and the '60s, tons of it, because that's what it's all about. Uh, but I'm talking like pure Sonics pure m- mixing with headroom, with the attention, with the focus that that you give pop productions today, which wasn't necessarily the case in the 70s. And even if it was, they didn't have the gear or, it, you know, yeah. um, and the 60s. It, it's a different mindset. Um, <clears throat> but in the 80s, you had that, so you had that concept of making things sound great and spending I don't know a year on on an album or, or something like that, or two days on on the that snare sound, and and on those and I, obviously there are, there are more and I, uh, left out quite a few but uh, but those things sound amazing, mm-hmm. and and later on you have a lot of amazing stuff in the 90s as well, but this is more like the way we work now. So, you know, you had Pro Tools, it was more limited, maybe the vocals, you had to spend more, more time recording it because you didn't have Tune or flex pitch and all that. Yes. Um, but But conceptually, it was conceived like like we do it today. I think In a non-linear way.
0: In a non-linear way. Yeah. And so, I think, yeah, I think I um, understand where you're coming from there. And one thing that has always bothered me about uh, the way I learned, and I'm no, I I really am no mix engineer by, you know, what what am I saying? I'm not someone who spends all day, every day doing that, you know, I, I, I do a variety of things, but... The way I learned was, you know, at university, I was able to uh, acquire a copy of Logic and some Waves plugins and just start messing around with them without knowing what they do. And that meant for probably about five years, what I was doing was watching my door and looking at meters going and looking at, you know, um, RMS meters and all this stuff. and trying. Does that look right? And I get the impression in the, let's call it the old way, where you had a desk and monitors, you were using... It was easier or it was harder to use your eyes uh, to try and make those kind of uh, foolish judgments. You were forced to use your ears when you were making your mixed moves. And if you couldn't hear an effect, you would know that you you, you were not doing anything with that mixed move.
1: Yeah, in a way. Um, at the same time, you had to to, to trust the meters, the view meters that you had on your tape machine or on your desk, um, which were mirroring the tape machine for convenience, basically. But it was the same view meters because that's what you were recording. And you had, in order to get it right, it had to be recorded right. Um, Yeah, it's true that in a mix, meters are less kind of meaningful or, or helpful. Um, but they're I mean, more helpful I, I help in tracking. You have to use them. Yeah. You have to use them, and you have to know what it means to to use view meters, which are totally different to peak meters. On on the A to D, on our front end of our recording device, um, you have peak meters. And everyone—that's why everything is so hot because you record everything to, you know, just so it won't clip. Um, so to minus one or minus two dB full scale, which is 18 dB. Zero dB full scale uh, is plus 18 dB VU. And and if you think about recording vocals to tape, you record it at zero or, you know, sometimes plus two and bass um, and, and things like that with continuous, uh, which are continuous. So that would be minus, uh, minus 10 peak or something like that. And no one records that because if you look at it today, you, you think, oh, it's really low. Um, and at, at, at the same time, you had to know that when you look at the hi-hat, on the view meter, you hardly see anything and it's fine because the peak information is there, but the view is not the needle is, or the ballistics is not fast enough. It's not PPM on PPM meters. You could see that. Um, so you had to, and, and you had to know that if you recall the hi hat too loud. So if you record the hi-hat at zero dB VU, it will bleed to the adjacent tracks and if you have, um, I don't know, a pad or vocal or something like that, and at some point in the mix you want to mute the hi-hat or the producer wants to, or you want to try, you know, having a breakdown verse after the mid eight or something like that, then you, you won't be able to mute it because it it's printed on your vocal or whatever it is at, at the the sides on the sides of the that higher set so you had to, to take a lot of things into consideration um and that's why it was called uh it used to be called engineering yes you had to 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 know what you're doing
0: and um what's it more akin to if you only learn in the door is it more like designing rather than engineering
1: no it's an it's still engineering but it's it applies to to the current way of um, so you can you can be a writer and you can write a, a novel mm-hmm. on your phone and it will still be a good novel, but if you take it two thousand years back, a writer was someone who knew the letters because there were like 500 letters or syllables or sounds and so it was it, it there was a technical knowledge that was required in order to concentrate on the content of what you're writing and now there's a, you know it's immediate you you just you just do it and and the same thing applies to to production you just go to splice, you select a few sounds, you you know, it's, but then you can concentrate on the, on the content. Yeah. Which is the important thing.
0: Well, that's what I noticed. I noticed that you're being very careful not to make uh, an argument to say, well, it was better back then. So the, advan- what are the advantages of, of the way we can do things now on the door
1: beyond just being able to focus on the content? So, you know, um, with my work for, for Waves, I develop all those tools, all those cool and amazing tools that, that, we, that, that are at our disposal when we, when we produce. So I love it. I mean, the, um, and I love, and I don't want to go back. I mean, I can, look, I have a, a, a sort of old school studio and I just need to, to, I can switch off the computer. I don't have a, a, multi, a 24 track or 48 track, but I can get one and, you know, but I, I don't want to work like that because uh, I, I'm glad that I did, but I've had my time rewinding tape and waiting for it to rewind and, you know, working on a tone feel and doing cycle uh, on the Studer. So it plays for seven seconds and then stops and rewinds. And, you know, it's not fun for me. And there's no reason to do it. Like if you want the sound of tape, and I, and I sometimes, very rarely now, I sometimes, I used to do it. Um I have a Studer two track in the rack. So if I really, really want that sound, I can record through it. And I used to remember the number of samples to shift it back because of the you know the the repro mm-hmm. repro head I think it was seven thousand and something samples. So when when you you obviously you monitor without the tape because there's the record head and the retro head. So you have mm-hmm. to record to that and then it plays it back from the repro head, which is, I don't know, 400 or 300 milliseconds later, depending on the the speed. Hence tape delay. That's tape delay. Um, And if you want to record like that, you have to monitor without the tape. um, And you record the tape at the same time. You can record it before the tape, so you have the two audio signals. One will be shifted. But the, the the delay is fixed, so once you you measure it once, you, you just push the sample back, push the recording back after you recorded it, and then you have all the benefits of editing and all that. It yeah. sounds great, no no argument about it. But there's uh, you know there's so many styles of music that don't require that sound, and that sound and that analog sound is almost. If you listen to to kind of, I don't know, trap EDM or something like that, and the bass, there's no way you could do that with tape, or even with with an analog desk. The headroom that that you need is is crazy, and it just doesn't exist on on tape and or oh, what, having
0: with... those kind of thick 808 basses and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And why can't tape reproduce that?
1: Um, because it has harmonic distortion, it has a smearing of the transient. So, you know, that spike that you have at the, on the front, tape just can't handle it. Tape is more like dough. You know, if you press it, you will see the, the imprint of your thumb, but it won't be exactly the same. And that's, that's what happens to the transients on on tape.
0: That's fascinating. And I'm always reminded of, back in when I was in college about 10 years ago, we were having the same debate that everyone always has, which is, have we discovered all the music that we're ever going to discover now? And um, it's easy to forget that I think generally musical genres and musical boundaries are pushed forward by technology primarily. And it sounds as if from what you're saying, you could not have had genres like EDM or perhaps drum and bass and things like this in the analog era because you need the various things that digital can offer in order to even work in that genre. Um,
1: Well, you needed a digital drum machine. Yes. For (laughs) starters. starters, um, I think it's more that the people... Or the audience of those genres, or, or, or any genre, um, get used and and then fall in love with the quality of. So, so you know, it's like people used to say, "Oh, I I only like film, and when it's recorded, when it when I see video, it's not looking the same, or digital, or this. It's the same thing. But if you if you look at people. These days, Netflix—it's whatever it is, and it doesn't matter. And if someone grows on a TV series that they watch now on Netflix, then this will be part of their personality and memory bank, and this is what they will think fondly of in when they're older. So it—it's it, it, not a—it's not a, a thing. It's whatever you you grow up with. Yes,
0: I I, I, it's in, well, it, what one thing I wanted to um, bring up with you, and I, I ask, I've asked a couple of engineers and producers about this because uh, I'm fascinated by the discussion. Um, Steve Albini is a proponent of analog, and you've probably seen and heard his, his arguments spoken mm-hmm. with him about it, about the archival storage question with digital, and uh, you know, and 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 the uh, possible precariousness uh, of the, you know, the long-term storage of digital stuff. Where, Where do you stand on that?
1: I think first, the most important thing is to get everything digitized. If you're lucky enough, you'll be able to do it again. Yeah, I heard something about the Canadian, that's an old... Story: The Canadian Library or National Library or something like that who digitized millions of, of audio recordings that they had and they did it straight to MP3 or something like that, you know. So, but, but even if you, if you recorded something at the, the, the best quality but you, you did it uh, 20 years ago, 16-bit or 30 years ago, even or 25 years ago, 16-bit, 44. It wouldn't sound great, but uh but the music will be there. The the whatever the, the content will be there. So so the the quality is is secondary. Um you know when i hear um, basically anything you hear now on spotify like beatles or or whatever if you want to listen to all stuff it's all remastered and remixed and you know you you won't find the original because the original it, what people used to to hear it on is vinyl and vinyl and, and no one that's not what you get on spotify but if i happen to to listen to or to hear something like that it sounds great because of the music. The, the the format is is of a lesser significance to me.
0: Interesting. So it sounds like another way to perhaps uh, phrase your argument there is that uh, music is re- is preserved when people want to remember it when it's considered important enough by the audience to keep bringing forward with us. Yeah,
1: music is a, is an emotional kind of is. A, emotional capsule yeah and uh, it's it's what's what's inside
0: yeah and it's also important to remember that well not everything does get remembered forever in fact most stuff gets forgotten in, in general so you know if, if the argument is we need to keep things preserved for the future it's a fair argument but um, you know it's yeah People decide what needs preserving um, by their purchasing power, I guess.
1: Yeah, recording is is a relatively new thing. Recording of audio. You know, it's a hundred and whatever, 30 years old or something like that. And that's it. So imagine how much stuff humanity has produced that was never recorded.
0: Yes, because they couldn't write, for example. You know, we're lucky that uh, Beethoven could write.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But then the question is, you know, there were, there were so many talented uh, classical composers or composers that used to live in the 17th or 18th century, centuries. And, um, you only hear about a few. And the question is whether it's because they had good PR whether with you know, because there could be some, maybe there were some amazing composers that no one would hear about because they, their manuscripts didn't survive for some yes. reason or they weren't quite as famous or, you know, uh, so... Oh, like saying we could have easily lost all of the work
0: of uh, Johann Sebastian Bach in a fire. It could have happened
1: he was we i think he was quite well known but but if you think about what has he was commissioned to write most of his uh or a lot of his great work yes. by yes. by the church and he that was his day job and he, he, imagine if it weren't if it you know it, um so it's not just about being genius it's about being in the right place at the right time, having connections, having tons of luck um, to to be successful. And then success is how do you measure success? Is success being heard by a million people today, or being heard by one people, one person? for a million, like every year for a million years. Yes. Uh, Again, it's like linear versus kind of non-linear.
0: Yeah, distributing across time instead of space. Exactly. Very interesting. So I'd like to um, uh, change gear a little bit for a moment and um, get... get into some uh, you know techniques some modern stuff for our uh, hopefully some of our audience uh, producers and engineers looking to glean some wisdom um, in terms of because um, I know you put a lot of material on YouTube don't you a lot demonstrating you know how you like to work or often you know for waves showing off products mm-hmm. um, but when you are entering a mix, Uh, and preparing a session. I presume, do you have the session prepared for you on the door or do you do all your preparation?
1: Usually I have it prepared um, by my assistants, uh, which I very methodically um, show how to do it. So it's a very specific
0: kind of process. So the odds are because I've worked with one of the engineers that you trained that I've seen your process. Oh, yeah, with Jeremy, yeah. Um, So um, I suppose what are... So let's take that as an example, not Jeremy in particular, but when you are training people and showing them how you work, um, what are the bad habits that you're conscious of that young engineers can get into that you're trying to bypass or or help them to correct quickly?
1: In In one line, I would say... you either control the situation or you find yourself being controlled by the situation. Um, so, and by control, I mean you have to deal with everything you have. Sometimes you get hundreds of tracks. Some, some of them are mono, some of them are stereo, some of them are recorded. Well, some of them are recorded not so well sometimes you have like backing vocals all over the place and you have, uh, I don't know, some samples which are late and some crackers and noises and things like that. So un- unwanted, I mean, not like uh, if you're working on a lo-fi um, production. Mm-hmm. And the, the key here is to go one by one I, I can describe my like the process of how I, I how I do it. Um, I would drag all the tracks first, even before I drag all the tracks. I would make sure that I don't have kind of weird names like underscore twelve point, you know, things that that don't mean anything and just clutter the screen. So if it says um, I don't know bass. That's all I need to know. I yes. don't need to know anything beyond that. So I would go and rename the tracks and make make the list look nice, um, because that's what you're gonna see in front of you for the next few hours, few days, few whatever, and even. Um, so that's the first thing, um, and then as soon as you get the tracks on the screen find the bpm sometimes you have it sometimes you have to to find it yes so that's that's the the very first thing you do because uh well i'm not going to get into that but it can save a lot of a lot of grief later then you, you save it as you make sure that everything is where you want it to be so you don't just hit save and then it's on the desktop and it's like Untitled 12 or <laughs> something like that. You know, yeah. you, you have the name of the artist. You, you have the name of the song. Then you have the logic file or Pro Tools or whatever saved within that. Then there's a folder for for audio files and you know where everything is and you set up the recording path. Um, in Pro Tools, you don't have to do it but in uh, because it's done... Um and, um, and then sorting and arranging the, the 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 tracks. So I always start with drums, percussion, sound effects. So anything that is atonal. So that there's, you know, uh, and then the bass or basses. And for me, visually, that's, that's a boundary because I know that above that there's drums and stuff and below that there's instruments, so bass. And then I would, if, it, if it's a keyboard song, then I would put the main, let's say piano, but even between, and then guitars and then whatever, and then vocals and then backing vocals. But within each group, I would find the instrument that, starts the earliest, and that will be my first one. So everything will be in steps. So if I have a piano that plays all the way through, then that will be the main thing in the keyboard group. And then I will color. So then you see it like that. You don't have to, to, you know, it's just about reducing the, the strain on your eyes. Um, and then I would color every group, each group in its own color, Um, and then you start the process of um, finding out whether the track is mono or stereo, because a lot of exports from Ableton or from, from Cubase will be stereo even if the content is mono. Yes. So I don't need a stereo bass drum if it's mono. Um, in Logic, you can flick on the same track between mono to stereo, which is very handy. In Ableton, you you can't even do that. It's always stereo. Yes, yeah. Um, so in Pro Tools, you would have to create two mono tracks and drag the stereo one and then lose one of them. In Logic, it's very easy because you can just flick between mono to stereo or even select just the left of a channel and it will be mono or just the right. Um, so I do that because I can't stand uh, waste. Yes. Like waste of of CPU. Yes. Um, wasting, like having two, a stereo chain when I can have a mono chain on something. Um, and then... You know, so so when you when you do it, when you ta- follow these steps, each step helps you in gaining more control over the session because it's no longer this kind of threatening <laughs> unknown. It's yeah. something that okay, I have oh, I have two hundred tracks. Okay, but only forty of them are keyboards, so that's something I can deal with. And only 60 of them are drums. It's not like, and suddenly you have a shaker there and this. You you kind of um, condense it into, or you, you put it into smaller chunks, um, and then this cleaning, like all the backing vocals. You know, I don't need all the s's and all the. At the end of, of the, the backing vocals. I just need one T. If, if the, the you know the word ends with a T, I just need one. I don't need to hear outs, and all that. So take all that. I don't need any breaths on the backing vocals. So chop them out. Um lead vocal. Um separate the breaths to its own, its own channel. So you can, and then I copy the, the one, once I get the vocal chain and I'm happy with the sound and and all the plugins and everything, then I will copy to the breaths, but then I have the breaths on, on the separate fader. That's all I need. I need them to be quieter, but if you keep them on the same track then you want all of them louder. You have to go one by one and automate, or you know. So it's always easy to 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 do it like that. To spend a little bit of time, which will save you a lot of time, and it's not only the time; it's the the focus, because when you focus on this mix prep um, and looking at gates. On the snare and and the kick, um, editing the toms, doing all those things, and when you when you do it, you, it will sound already good. Yes, because because it's it's you know what's going on and you know what is playing where because you can see it because it's all diagonally like that and. It's not intimidating. And and by that time, when you finished it, you're ready to mix. And by mix, I mean really mix. Because then you can enjoy the process and not in the back of your mind, knowing that you will have to come to the vocal and you know that there's some really loud breaths uh, there or you need to you know, let alone when you produce something and, or you do additional, a lot of my sessions are additional production and mix. So, um, you know, I look at the production and I see if it's missing anything or if I can tune the vocals better or I can add or augment some of the parts or make the cores bigger um things like that uh and and you want everything to be in place be- before you can do it because then it's just easier it's really it's really interesting to hear um
0: someone of someone at, at let's say at your level to put it Simply Uh, describe it like that because I know exactly the anxiety that you're speaking of when you have a mix session that's completely out of control and you end up scrolling up and down, panicking, trying to make on the fly mix moves because you aren't sure why it doesn't sound the way that you want it to. And so you're just going, I mean, this is when I, you know, far less experienced, is going around thinking, oh, where's the problem frequency? I guess maybe 500, pull 500 out. Oh no, now it sounds worse. I'm going to have to do something else. It sounds, all. It sounds like a lot of your method is about controlling any of this need for sporadic anxiety and out of control decisions and getting it into a place where you can, well, control it because that's what partially what the mix
1: is, isn't it? It's about getting everything into its place. Mm-hmm. And and that stems from from being an engineer in a big studio in big sessions, you know, when you have like seven people in the live room and a producer here and an artist here and uh, and all that and and you have to you have to just do it your way and you have to dictate, or enforce, not enforce, but you have to just do it the way you want it done. Because other one, otherwise, everyone will be all over you, and you wouldn't get anything done. And it's the same, and it's the same with people, and it's the same with tracks. Maybe so not nice to say, but uh, it's the same kind of. Uh, for me, it's the same approach.
0: The people and tracks both need a lot of management. Absolutely. So one thing I wanted to... You were talking about mono and stereo. Um, and, you know, the when you were talking about Ableton, it reminded me that we had um, a, a little listening session in our studio not too long ago where we would listen to, um, let's say, you know, very popular current hip-hop tracks. We're talking about Travis Scott and, and, and Drake and things like this. And we were A-B, A-B-ing between mono and stereo on the monitors. And it felt like absolutely everything's in mono at the moment. Are we in a second mono revolution? And, and if, if so, or if not,
1: why? Um, yeah, but this time it's by choice. So yes. it's different. Uh, it's basically, it's more is more. That's the concept. So you want more vocals, you want more bass, but you want the, the 808 to be here in your face. And you want the hi-hat, that piercing hi-hat to be here. So everything is here. And uh, and since there's not much reverb or effects on the vocal, then there's nothing to, to really kind of, maybe in the chorus you have a pad or something like that, which is slightly stereo, but m- most of the stuff, the, the important stuff, yeah, it's all in the center. And there's nothing wrong with that. It translates well to 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 your phone and to, you know, and and you're not. And this music is not about kind of textures and depth levels and things like that. It's not about that.
0: That's interesting that you mentioned depth because that's something that I I learned from Jeremy. In fact, so it was probably like secondhand knowledge coming down because this is. I met Jeremy when I was uh, very uh, inexperienced as a, as a producer and a mix engineer because he reached out to me having heard one of my records saying, I'd like to work with you. But, uh, you know, there's a load of buildup in the low mids and there's no depth. And I was like, what, what do you mean by depth? He's like, we use reverbs to create depth. And of course, light bulb came on because for me, reverb had always just been to be a kind of a flashy effect. You can hear the tail, right? And the decay. And um, so... It was from Jeremy that I learned the idea that your reverbs are to spatially place things rather than to create an audible effect. But it, it sounds like you were saying that in the current musical climate, e- climate, climate, even that is uh, on the recession slightly. We're not using reverbs to create depth, but surely that must still be happening um, because otherwise it would sound very flat. Or I don't know. It
1: is happening, but um, you know, it's usually the reverb is. You have it already in the guitar riff you picked from Splice. Yes. So so when when you when it stops, the reverb stops with it. Yes. So there's no tail. Um, you know, and when the chorus comes and the guitar stops, it stops. And so there's no tails, and um, if you have reverbs that they're a lot shorter. Um, unless it's something that you want kind of swimming in in reverb and all that, which is the the sound of the... So, yeah, you can argue that, on the other hand, there are a lot of styles that stuff is drowning in reverb, which will never kind of uh, happen 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I guess that the stereo-ness of stuff gets compensated elsewhere
0: compensate them for elsewhere. Uh, Here's um, something I would uh, like you to weigh in on. I noticed this is another thing for, again, uh, I'm I'm aiming a lot of my questions um, at trying to kind of glean wisdom for younger and less experienced producers. And one thing I noticed recently is less experienced producers tend to think that sub frequencies are a lot more present or important than they are. And I could be wrong about this, but my impression has been when we're listening to records and we're comparing that with what we can achieve in the door. There's actually not a great deal of sub, certainly not as much as you imagine, and things tend to taper off somewhere near 100 hertz, I'm
1: not sure. Mm, again, the important stuff, the, the, the notes you hear, the low notes, the low fundamental frequencies of the notes played, um... Are around they could go down to 70 or 67, yeah, sometimes. But a lot of the times the those subs that you hear are an acoustical, acoustic response of your listening environment. So in the car you would have that. In your living room, you would have that, or even in your bedroom with your tiny speakers, which are really kind of trying to glorify the bass uh, and they have this button that you press and everything is like and mm-hmm. then you hear so it's not necessarily in the mix Right. so I wouldn't be too much concern, too concerned about the subs because you, you'll you get them um, but, that, but that only comes with, with experience and with with good with a good listening environment Yes. um when you you know when i when I listen to to stuff here I know how it will translate and this is this is out of experience but also the the experience is to listen to something and know it's accurate and then to know how it would translate but you need to have an accurate, uh, listening environment. That, that's the most important thing because I can do I can do anything or everything I do, I can do with just lap, a laptop and plugins.
0: Um, that's, I, had a, I had a discussion with Eric <laughs> Valentine last week who said exactly that. He said, you can have a pair of $30,000 speakers and if you have an, a, a mix environment which isn't treated well, the speakers are worth $0. Mm-hmm. So we've been... Uh, Preaching that gospel for some time here, uh, in terms of the mix environment, yeah. So, but there's no, but there's no rule of thumb like you know, like there's no rule of thumb uh, uh, to say like you don't need anything below fifty-four hertz. It's like just genre specific. I see Dead Mouse talking a lot about having things at thirty hertz and forty hertz going on, but it's just to be note mindful of you don't need very much of those frequencies represented.
1: It's all a matter of balance. Mm. Um, you know, it, and and also it's it's how people work. So a lot of people work with like different la- like layering the kick, make, making it from four different kicks and one one element will be the the, the the sub frequencies. and you have to have it there because otherwise your bass drum will be tiny. The question is if you work that way, how loud do you make this, this sub, the channel? Um, so there, there are different ways of, of reaching the same or not the same, but of, of, you know, make, making a great mix. Um, and it doesn't mean that anyone's any one person's, uh, method is better than, than, any other but uh, it's just what makes you feel good and confident when you work yeah that's some uh, again it's another thing you were talking about
0: it being balance something i noticed comparing certainly how i work now to how i worked when i was well about 10 years ago uh 10 years ago i would imagine that the mix engineer is basically a sound designer And if they don't enjoy the sound of the kick, they can reshape it and resculpt it. It took me a long time to understand that the sounds are as they are in the mix, and you're trying to balance them together rather than radically alter them.
1: Um, Yeah, sometimes you do, but but there's there's a there's a sort of thin line between uh, um, mixing and producing
0: yeah in the, in the same way I suppose as the discussion about engineering and producing there being a sort of a line between those cool. two things as well yeah absolutely so uh, a couple more questions and I'm gonna let you go you have given me a lot of time and uh, I thank you uh, very much um and so uh yeah there's kind of a tacky question um that I've been raring to ask which is do you um do you in general try to avoid having having preferred products preferred plugins before you know what you're dealing with. So uh, an example would be, do you use the same reverbs and the same delays every time or is it different depending on what flavor you want?
1: Um, I have a template session with eight auxiliary returns. Um, So I have a few reverbs and a couple of delays and a kind of stereo harmonizer On the high frequencies and and I would try them I would try them because it's just easy to to already have the auxiliary sense assigned and then I try something and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't I, I don't think that I would obviously I will not keep it if it doesn't sound right but Having a template is very, very beneficial.
0: Yeah. And uh, again, it is part of the ethos of making sure there's as little clutter and worry going into the session as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Another tacky question about um, uh, spatial tools would be, um, is there a rule of thumb in your opinion as to when you should use delays and should use reverbs, or is it not that simple?
1: I don't think that should is is a concept that really applies to to, to mixing. Um, I I think that sometimes people feel that in order to to get depth and sense of space, they need to use a lot of reverb. Um, And for that, I would say two things. One is... It doesn't always have to be reverb. Sometimes it can be a delay because that has a very similar effect in the mix as long as you don't hear the individual taps. So it can be quiet. It doesn't have to have a lot of feedback or even any feedback. But even a single mono delay will, will go a very long way in, in, in creating space. So this is something, uh, but sometimes it's not possible, like on drums or, or things like that. It's not possible because you would hear the individual taps on bass and, and, and things. But if you do use re- reverb, a lot of the times it, has, it, it can be a lot shorter than you think. Yes. And the shape of it, because if you have a linear shape, then... You have to have it really loud, so this bit would be audible. But then it, you you have all the, the, this huge tail that lingers. But if you if the if you work with non-linear reverb shapes, like on H Reverb, for instance, or reverbs that you can you can scalp the, the the decay uh, shape to a non-linear one, then you get a lot of density here for like half a second or 800 milliseconds. And then you don't need all that tail. So it can have a very short decay. So the shape of the, the reverb is is really important. And the And the length and
0: knowing that, you know, it's very, very rare. It sounds like that you need to use anything beyond, you know, 1, 1.2 seconds, things like that. These huge reverbs I don't hear a lot anymore.
1: Unless the style kind of dictates it and then you know, you have your Valhallas and all that. Yes. So,
0: uh, one final question um, that I'm always trying to dig into and, and, and clarify is a lot of people think that mastering is a case of getting everything to zero dB. What does mastering
1: mean to you? Uh, wow, uh, we have, <laughs> sorry, it's a big question. We could have a whole discussion just on that. Um, I, I once said that uh, mastering is taking over twenty-five years of experience and condensing it into half dB movements. So um, it, um, you have to be very Thoughtful, I wouldn't say careful, but you have to, 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 yeah. Cause every, on a finished mix, you don't have much dynamics anymore. Everything is mixed together in a way that is kind of solid and moves together. So you don't have a kick drum here and a snare drum here. And you know, they're very dynamic but you have one kind of consolidated piece of, of music and, and every, anything you you do to it will be very, very significant. So, so I would say definitely less is more in, in mastering. Um, And I do, I do a lot of mastering. Uh, I get sent tons of mastering all the time. Uh, by people and and I really like it because I get to hear what other people are doing and you know um, more than more so than in mix than when I mix because it's just a shorter kind of um, gig yes to, to, to master a song than to mix a song so the numbers uh, are, are greater and uh, yeah, I, I, I respect, I try to respect what I get and to not trying to, to turn it into something else because whoever worked on it, they were happy. At some point they said, wow, this is our mix. Let's print it. That's great. And and I want to preserve that that feeling. And if I can help it and if I can... Kind of tap into what they meant and just take it another step forward. Um, then, that, yeah, that's what I that's what I try to do.
0: It's very tempting to uh, see a mixed wave and just want to mess about with it, but that's really interesting to say that it's, uh, it's, it's experience is essential and it's about small moves.
1: Yeah. I guess, you know, experience, I guess some people who are very talented would just get it because it's not complicated. Technically, it's not complicated. It's only, it's again, it's only about the choices you make. That's the least kind of technical stage of the whole from writing to mastering and everything is in between. Mastering is the least technical um, or technically demanding uh, thing you do, but it's all about choice, and it doesn't mean that you, you you don't have to know what you're doing, but it's it's about choice. Have you ever worked with Robin
0: Schmidt at Twenty Four Ninety Six Mastering?
1: Uh, no, I mean I I master since 93 I master my own mixes and wow. uh, you know and develop the waves masters bundle for waves uh, so I do yeah I I, I I master my own mixes and I get sent a lot of other um songs to master uh, I suppose yeah the um the angle of my question was ju- uh,
0: just to say that I never knew until. Uh, last year that it was such a quick process by, you know, if, if the engineer knows what they're doing. Um, because I sent, I think, five tracks. We'd produced a record five tracks off to the master. Uh, and it got downloaded at two and then sent back to me at four. And it was perfect.
1: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. It shouldn't take long. It's just, uh, again, if you're confident in what you, you do, then it's like... This and that, and it's
0: done. Yeah. So um, there's always going to be more to talk about, and so I hope we can talk again. But Yoad Nevo, thank you for spending so much time with me. Thank you for giving us so much information, uh, uh, and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, YouTube uh, people who just learn from YouTube are going to be coming to put you out of business very soon with everything we've learned from you. So uh, thanks for all that. <laughs> no worries, my pleasure. Have a great day. And uh, yeah, hope we get to speak again soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.